listening to sermons from South Point McDonough, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. Good morning again. Um, for those of you who don't know me, I'm uh, Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. And this morning, uh, you may not have recognized um, the guy who was leading music this morning. We're thankful for Zane Cook and filling in at the last moment. Zane is a partner here, but we don't always get to see him since he's uh, studying music up in North Georgia. And we're thankful for him sharing our, his gifts with us at the, at the last minute. So thank you, Zane, for doing that with us. Um, uh, since it is the first of the year, uh, everyone seems to talk about New Year's resolutions. A- anybody in particular New Year's resolution kind of people? Okay, a few people. Maybe, maybe some of you are like, you know, I've done that, but I just kind of realized that that wasn't for me, you know? Um, it's always a mixed bag because some people really like New Year's resolutions and some people seem to really hate them. Um, in fact, a friend told me the other day that Uh, She can't start anything new in the month of January because it just feels like there's too much pressure. And so uh, her resolutions, if if they begin, start in another month besides January. So maybe you're like that. But for some reason, I really enjoy New Year's resolutions. It feels like the new year brings a natural break in our calendar, and it provides at least a feeling, for me at least, of, of newness. And so I enjoy resolutions. And as I was reading over some of the resolutions or resolves, as he referred to them as, Jonathan Edwards has had these two in, in regards to prayer. He said this, his, this was his 29th resolve, resolved never to count that a prayer, nor to let that pass as a prayer, nor that as a petition of prayer, which is so made that I cannot hope that God will answer it, nor that as a confession, which I cannot hope God will accept. His 64th resolve was this, when I find those groanings which cannot be uttered, Romans 8.26, of which the apostle speaks, and those breakings of soul for the longing it hath, of which the psalmist speaks, Psalm 119.20, that I will promote them to the utmost of my power, and that I will not be weary of earnestly endeavoring to vent my desires, nor of the repetitions of such earnestness. Now, I haven't written mine down anywhere, especially besides this sermon at least. So I don't know if you would call them New Year's resolutions or not, especially when comparing them to Edwards. And you, you may say, I have no idea what you just read. That's okay. Uh, Edwards was a man of deep thought and deep prayer, especially about prayer. But I wanted to share with you this morning that I have an incredibly deep burden before the Lord for two things in particular in the year 2022. One is to spend more time in communion with the Lord through prayer, and two, with that, evangelizing those that don't yet know the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 4, which is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture, one that I've taught through many times, we see these two things colliding, prayer and the, gospel, the proclamation of 
the gospel. One is fueled by the other. In fact, we see that God uses the prayers of the saints to make way for the proclamation of the gospel. This shouldn't come as a surprise, though, since Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 9, verses 37 and 38 said this, familiar to most of us, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Again, the prayers of the saints make way for the proclamation of the gospel. Would you stand with me this morning to honor God's word as I read it aloud? Acts chapter 4, verses 23 through 31. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So a little context is necessary since we're just helicoptering in, if you will, to this passage just for the morning. But going back in Acts to chapter 3, Peter and John, by God's grace, by his Holy Spirit, heal a man that has been crippled for over 40 years. And this man, as a result, is leaping and jumping everywhere, all over the town, telling people what had happened to him, that he once was crippled, and now he is able to walk and jump and run and do all these things to the glory of God. And so all of these people, upon seeing this miracle, gather around Solomon's porch to hear about what had just taken place. And Peter tells them that this man had been healed not because of their touch only, but had been healed by the man that the angry crowds had recently killed, namely Jesus Christ, the risen Lord. Now, as you can imagine, that wasn't a really popular thing in that moment especially to the religious leaders of the day, and so they were arrested. Now, Peter explains that Jesus healed the man, and there is salvation in no other name except that man. He says specifically, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter makes an exclusive claim about Christ, and the religious leaders of the day could not possibly stand for this. But they didn't have anything substantial to keep these men arrested under, and so they released those men under one condition. 
What was that condition? Anybody know? Don't go out spreading the word. Do not speak again about the name Jesus Christ. Peter and John reply with this. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And so essentially, Peter and John say, I hear you, but we cannot do that. That's not going to happen. Everyone, it's important for us to note that Peter and John were not in trouble, though, because of healing a man. In fact, everyone in culture, even today, likes a good healing, a good, a good story of a miracle, right? There are plenty of t- stations on the television that you could go on to right now to watch some guy who says that he's performing a miracle and great crowds gather to see a miracle. A miracle is not what these men were being arrested for. They're in trouble about who they said performed the miracle, They're in trouble because of who they ascribed honor to for the healing. Serving is good. God's people throughout all time have been a people that are known for their serving. In fact, Jesus said that we we should be known by our love towards one another, and that certainly includes serving. Serving is good. The people of God serve, and we are to serve others well. However... Serving rarely gets us in trouble, doesn't it? It rarely gets us in trouble. Speaking the gospel, though, will. And it will continue to be that way in the here and now. Praying and sharing the gospel doesn't have to be your New Year's resolutions. But I'm confident that the Lord is calling us, his children, by faith in the new year into greater relationship with him today. In fact, if you want further reading on that, give John chapter 17 a read. He wants us to be one with him as he, the Father, and the Son are one, and that God desires for us to go out and be among those who are sharing the gospel regularly with others so that they too would have the opportunity to experience communion with the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I'm confident that the Lord is calling, to, calling us to do that to a greater degree in 2022. Now, the first thing I want us to see is in verse 23. Look there in the text. Again, there with me. Peter and John, upon being released, don't flee the city, do they? No, that's not what the text says. In fact, they go and gather with their friends, the Bible says. They go to gather with their Christian friends, their fellow church members. There isn't much to be said about that. And in fact, if the story ended there, there would be nothing more to say. All then, these people don't do what we might expect them to do. In the face of adversity, uh, we either typically are fleeing the scene of a flight scenario, or we're, we're trying to get in on the action and create the opposite outcome. Maybe we would decide to plot against the re- religious officials Hey, if we could subvert their plan and get everybody against them, maybe we can have and overcome them at that point. 
Or maybe we should plan a rally in the city center. Or maybe we should try to get some social media influencers on our side, right? But we don't see anything like that happening in verse 24. In fact, we see the opposite, something very different. Verse 24, and when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, You see, when they hear of persecution coming their way, what does this early church do? They immediately turn to who? God. They immediately go to their father in prayer. You see, in the face of adversity, the church prays. That's what we as the people of God do. That is where we are to turn. That is who we are to turn to. This church didn't huddle the women and children in a corner and began to board all the windows and doors. As they saw it, their only good option, the only logical option for the people of God in that moment was to pray. And so here in the text, we're reading their collective voice. This is what they are praying together as the church. Imagine what that must have sounded like. Imagine that collective voice all praying to the sovereign Lord at the same time, a people that are are and were experiencing persecution, and they're turning to him. When I was in Bible college at New Orleans Seminary years ago, there was a Korean program that was also taking place, um, sometimes in a classroom next to mine, and I realized in that moment that there was a different way than the American church prayed, that other people actually had different religious practices within Christianity than mine. And you knew that they were about to begin praying because there was this low murmur that would begin in the room next door. And it would grow louder and louder and louder all the time. And so finally, one day, one of the students in the class said, hey, professor, do you mind telling us what's going on in the room next door? Because some were concerned. It was a strange noise. We weren't used to hearing that as Southern Baptists. We don't make much noise as it is. And so he said, that is how the Korean church prays. They pray aloud at the same time with one another. And as I was reading this in Acts chapter 4, I thought of this collective voice of the people of God crying out to him in unison, sovereign Lord, what must that have sounded like? What must that have sounded like? They thought that this was their only good option. They begin to tell God who he is. Not because God needs to know who he is. He absolutely knows. He's sovereign. But because we, they, needed to be reminded of who God is. Family, let's pray together. Let's pray together. Let's be a people who are known for not relying on ourselves only, but a people who would come prostrate before the Lord, our Father, our sovereign God, and saying, God, we need you, and this is who you are. That's why we need you. You're in control of all things. We know this because you're a creator. You made the heavens and the earth and everything in them. That is who you are. And this prayer is the church's rehearsal of those facts that many of them have been taught from a young age, beginning in Genesis chapter 1. This is who we know God to be. This is who he says he is. We need to be reminded of that, don't we? 
So as we begin this new year, don't think that you have the Christian faith figured out. Don't think that you have communion with God figured out. You desperately, I desperately need the presence of the living God to continue into the next moment. We need that God. We need to be reminded that he is sovereign and he's in control of all things. Parents, use moments like this, like this early church is experiencing, moments of fear, Moments of uncertainty to teach your children about the doctrine of God through prayer. Are you afraid? Turn to your spouse. Turn to those who are with you. Turn to your children and say, let's pray. It's those moments that we express our utter and desperate need before a living God who is in control of all things. Step back for a moment when you're doubting that God is in control of whatever situation that you find yourself in and think about who created all things. Was it you? No. It was the living God. You see, this doctrine of creation is essential to understanding the sovereignty of God. This church gathered together in the middle of persecution cries out to the sovereign Lord, the God of unlimited power. They don't protest to God. They pray to a big God and tell him exactly who he is. That is why we need you, God. I think about the Israelites when Moses was on Mount Sinai. They grew impatient, didn't they? As he was up there for an undetermined amount of time and they didn't know when he was going to come down. And and some seem to have forgotten that he was up there on the mount communing with God. And so they grow impatient So what did they do when it seemed like God wasn't moving, when it seemed like God wasn't coming to their aid any longer? They tried to worship something of their own creation. They have Aaron fashion a calf out of gold to which he later tells Moses just appeared from the fire. You see, the the Egyptian, the Israelites worshiped their own creation. But faith, brothers and sisters, turns and worships our creator. That's the difference for the people of God. We don't give or pay homage to the things that we have made, to the things that we long for to have in this life. We pay homage. We worship the God who has made everything and has indeed created us. Faith doesn't fear in uncertainty. It prays. It prays, may that be an encouragement to your heart and soul this morning as you come in here likely burdened from the year past with all the the things that have occurred in your life. Many of you, it has been a ton. Faith doesn't fear in uncertainty, it prays. So this is what the early church does. They pray in response to God himself. And their prayer continues in verse 25. Look there in the text with me. Continue, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Not only do these early Christians find their identity in who God is, but they know who God is as he's revealed himself 
to them in his scriptures. And immediately they begin connecting those dots in their prayer. They point to the second Psalm, verses 1 and 2, and they see it as a depiction of Christ Jesus. They know that this sovereign God is in control of all things, so much so that he's even in control of the very men's lives, the Gentiles' rage, Herod and Pontius Pilate, all those that had a, a, a hand, if you will, in the murdering and killing of Jesus Christ, our Lord. God the Father was sovereign over all of those things. That's what these people are expressing to him in their prayer. We have no need to be concerned. We have no need to fear. You're in control of all things, God, and this is what you've called us to do. But the kicker is here in verse 28. This is where we get a glimpse of exactly what these Christians believed about who God is and as far as his sovereignty extends. Verse 28 to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. You see, these evil men, completely culpable themselves of their evil, were used in carrying out God's redemptive purposes for his church. God's plan, hear this, always comes to pass. You don't have to worry about that, church. We don't have to worry about whether we are not going to be able to bring God's plan to fruition. It always comes to pass because he is a sovereign God in control of all things. Evil men cannot thwart the plans of men, the plans of God. The religious leaders figured if they could just keep Peter and John silent, then all would be made right. Nothing more of this man, Jesus Christ, would come. It would be over. But God will, the scripture says, do whatever his hand has predestined to take place. And so when we are faced with gripping fear, and you and I will be, you may be today. You may be in this moment. Maybe your anxiety has reached a level that you have never experienced in your life. When the people of God are faced with gripping fear, may we be reminded immediately that God has always used even the plots of sinful, angry men to bring about the most good in Christ Jesus. That Christ's death was a part of this perfect plan. That the sin of this age can do nothing, absolutely nothing, to stop it. No one can stop God's mission. It cannot. It won't be stopped. So what does this church do when they realize such a thing? They pray. They pray. I don't think the, the text tells us that so that we would uh, begin to come up with other plans. God, in his kindness and love for his people, have given us this story so that we might do the same, that we might pray. Are you faced with gripping fear? Pray. Are you finding happiness in your life? Pray. Are you, are you feeling like there is too much to, to handle? Pray. What does this church do? They pray. We pray because we need to be reminded of who God is. A.W. Pink writes, God has decreed that certain events shall come to pass through the means he has appointed for their accomplishment. So we can pray, resting assured that God uses prayer to accomplish his purposes. Verse 29, look there in the text with me. And now, Lord, 
Look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Just a couple of things here, a bit challenging to me. First, this is a descriptive text. It's describing what was happening in the early church. The Holy Spirit hadn't been dispersed or given to the church for a long period of time at this point in redemptive history. So it's descriptive. It's just telling us what happened in this moment with these particular believers. It doesn't tell us that we always have to respond exactly like this when something really bad strikes. It doesn't mean that we have to run to a, a house and get with particular amount of believers and pray this prayer. It's descriptive. I don't think the text prohibits us from praying prayers to our sovereign God for safety or for a plan of escape. In fact, the Apostle Paul and his missionary team, they left places on occasion because of persecution. Or the Holy Spirit at other times kept them from going to a place because of persecution. But I do think that it is interesting that we need to take note that these ordinary Christians choose to pray for something altogether different than what we are often accustomed to praying in these times. They pray for boldness. God, don't take us away from here. Give us boldness to continue the mission in which you've already sent us on. They aren't throwing in the towel because of persecution here. They're praying to the Lord that he would give them the strength to endure, perseverance for the road ahead, grace for tomorrow's journey. Does anybody ever need that? I heard one pastor say that there is a covert plan for the church to be quiet. Do you know that that is what the enemy would try his hardest to get us to do as the people of God? It's not that he would get us to denounce our faith altogether, or it's not that he would get us to go and and be with a different religion. The devil, the enemy, our adversary would have his heyday if he could convince us to say nothing at all about the living, reigning Messiah who is seated at the right hand of our Father, the majesty on high if he could just get us to be quiet. And so you know what? The Spirit empowers us in moments to pray, to be vocal, to lift our voices to God on high, to not be quiet, to pray to the one who empowers us for mission, to pray to him and to be sent out and speak the gospel message to those that are in need. Family, we've got to get God's word to their ears They must hear about the gospel, and I pray that we don't forget this. In this moment in history where we can and should absolutely meet freely Sunday after Sunday and as often throughout the week that we possibly can, in this moment where we can do that freely, might we pray all the more that we're not experiencing persecution, that the Lord might give us a tremendous, settled boldness about the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, we don't, for the most part, have anyone persecuting us, so let's pray, church. Verse 30 gives us once again a glimpse into their hearts. While you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Again, the prayer that this church prays together in unison of one accord isn't a prayer for revenge, 
No, it is, God, would you stretch out your sovereign hand to heal? Would you bring salvation to others so that more could know? Would you rain down your miracles of mercy as you've rained them down on us and our hearts? Family, might that fuel you when you think about the mercy that Christ Jesus has afforded and offered you? that he has given you a way to be reconciled to his father, that you have a relationship with the holy God for all eternity, might that fuel you to pray for others that they might too know that merciful, sovereign God. And then verse 31 concludes the chapter. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. You see, they pray. God hears their prayer as they prayed it by faith. The Holy Spirit fills them and he does what he does, empowers them with boldness. Why? So that they could continue, they could continue to speak that they can continue to speak the gospel message that they know they have been saved with and to church. We can't muster up this amount of confidence or this kind of boldness on our own. Our natural selves want to go one of two ways. We either want to go laissez-faire, hands off, I quit. I'm not doing this any longer or into rebellion. We want to fight back. We want to stick it to the man when they're saying things that slander our Lord and Savior. But the cross of Christ shows us that God is in control of all things and that his redemptive plans will come to pass no matter what. And so we can pray. We can go with the good news of the gospel and we do not have to be concerned or scared or afraid of the results. The prayers of the saints make way for the proclamation of the gospel. Now, years ago, our life groups went through an evangelism course and there was this prayer that was incorporated into it and I've begun to use it in my prayer life for the last several years. And it was a simple prayer. And it goes something like this. Lord, give me an opportunity to share the gospel with someone today. And the wisdom to see the opportunity and the courage to take the opportunity. If you're struggling with evangelism in your life, if you're struggling with figuring out how in the world you're going to get the gospel out, knowing that you have the full confidence of the living God empowering you, Pray something like this. Lord, give me an opportunity to share the gospel with someone today. God, would you give me the wisdom to see the opportunity that you're giving me? And would you give me the courage to take that opportunity? The first church that we read about today had that prayer or something like it down by heart. Lord, give me an opportunity to share the gospel with someone today. Family, I am convinced that we always pray for the things we want. We seem to always pray for the things that we want, don't we? We pray often for safety and provision, freedom from anxiety, freedom from patterns of sin, shame. Help us get through a meeting that we're scared to have. 
help us get a passing grade on the test that we haven't studied for? Restoration of a friendship? And those things are good. Don't hear me saying that it's wrong to pray for those things. I just know that we pray for the things that we want most. And I'm praying that gospel proclamation makes it onto the list of those members and partners in our church in 2022. That that would be something that we would be impassioned about as well. And maybe we don't all go about it the same way. Maybe some of you have been gifted more than others in the area of evangelism, but we are all to go and get the gospel out. I'm praying that gospel proclamation makes it onto that list this year. It's so near and dear to the heart of our missionary father who sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to be a propitiation for the sin, sinners, so that they might, we might have a right relationship with a holy God. Lord, give me an opportunity to share the gospel with someone, day, someone today. Lord, give me the wisdom to see the opportunity. I believe that opportunities in this life to get the gospel out abound. It's the wisdom part that we're often missing, the open doors that we fail to see because we're so often stuck in our own lane, doing our own things, doing the things that we've already written on our agendas and our planners that some of you have already filled out to the nth degree this week, and most of you won't use them next. We're so convinced of our own ways that we often fail to see the opportunities that the living God has placed right in front of us. But you know what? I'm so incredibly thankful for the mercy of God in these moments when we do fail, church. Knowing that God isn't making tally marks each and every time on the opportunities that we've missed to share the gospel but knowing that about how God sees us and loves us all the same because of the work of Christ Jesus should fuel us towards greater obedience to Christ's command of making disciples of all nations. God, help us. Help mold our hearts to be sensitive to the things that you are sensitive to. That should be our heartbeat. A brother texted me just a couple of days ago, and he said that he and his cousin were having a, a long conversation, one that he didn't expect to have, certainly not by text. He doesn't get to see this cousin very often, or his nephew, rather. And he said, all of a sudden, he just gave me this really hopeless text, and I need help in this moment to shape it, to point him towards the gospel of Jesus Christ because that's what he needs most, I'm sure of it. Would you help me? I love a text like that. We don't have to do it all alone, family. That's what this text is telling us. We have the family of God to come alongside of us, to encourage us in our time of need. Finally, we must pray for the courage to take the opportunity. And this is where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. You can have all the opportunities in the world. You can have the wisdom to see that you need to take those opportunities, but words must actually come from your mouth. I'm thankful for the body of Christ again. You see, even in this passage, Peter and John are together. They're encouraging one another by being together in front of those who are persecuting them. And they have their church family who are ready and eager to pray with them about more opportunities. Let's not make this such an isolated endeavor that we scare ourselves out of ever sharing the gospel before we've even tried. 
It's a communal effort. The family of God evangelizes together. It takes all of us. So ask for prayer. Ask for backup. Ask for help in crafting text messages. Ask a sister to go with you to have that conversation. Ask a brother to come in and lead a Bible study in your workplace. I think there's a challenge here as well for our DNAs and life groups in 2022 to spend more time in prayer this year praying for people that don't yet know Christ. Real people with real names and real souls. If your life group wants to do an evangelistic study this year, go for it. Let me know. I would be happy to help in that. The opportunities are endless and our God is sovereign. So go and be bold with great confidence, church. I want to know what this city would look like if every one of us had gospel proclamation on that list of ours of things that we pray for. What would this city look like if we asked God to give us the boldness that this early church prayed and asked for?